Welcome to the Christian Ministries Church Podcast. My name is Josh Barnett. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We're praying that this message equips and empowers you to live in the kingdom of God. Um, I'm ex- so excited about this word. Uh, before Tim even asked me to speak tonight, back in April, God gave me this scripture and I just had been sitting on it. And um, so I- I'm very excited to share this with you. Y'all go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Hunting season is coming up, and, it, and there are many who are excited. I, um, I grew up hunting with my dad. Now, I will not say that I like hunting. I like eating the food. You know, I, I, like, ven- I like that all. Um, the waking up at 4 a.m. in the 30-degree weather, you know, I just think I'd rather be asleep at 4 a.m. warm. And so, but my husband loves to hunt. Hunting season's coming up. Uh, I, I grew up hunting with my dad a few times, and it was really fun. You know, and I, it was the coloring book on the floor of the, the deer stand, falling as, with the snacks, falling asleep, you know. It was all that, and it was really fun. And the only time we would, you all, also, just, you can't talk. You, you, and if you whisper, it's really just sparingly. You just so silent and you have to be so still and for me clearly I'm back and forth all it's impossible for me to be still so uh anyways it was fun and I would fall asleep and the only time we'd really talk is when he would give me the headphones you know to your earphones and because uh, he's about to shoot something but um it was fun it was a fun time quality time with dad something really cool that he did uh, and passed down to us was uh, he gave Jason my grandfather's 270, is that correct? Hunting rifle. And, uh, and so it's really neat. And so uh, my grandfather hunted with that gun. He gave it to my dad. My dad gave it to Jason to one day hopefully give to our son Liam. So it's just a really precious gift. And so uh, even though I'm not necessarily an avid hunter, it's just something that we, we keep take very good care of because it's not only just something of value monetarily, but it is something sentimental and of value emotionally. So we, we treasure it and we take very good care of it. In a similar way, God has given us something that is very sacred and very precious, and that is His presence. In the Old Testament, the temple, and more specifically the Holy of Holies, was a very sacred space. It was where the Ark of the Covenant lived. And the Ark of the Covenant, inside of it, had the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna from the wilderness, and then Aaron, who was the first priest, Moses' brother, his staff. And so, because uh, it was a precious and um, sacred object, they took very good care of the Ark of the Covenant. The power of, the God, of God rested on the Ark, and it represented His presence. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, Jesus was the power of God incarnate, and upon the temple veil tearing in half God's presence, which was once very exclusive, now is available to everyone through the atonement of Jesus and the gift that is his Holy Spirit. So because of that, there's not just one resting place 
for the presence of God. He is everywhere. His presence is near to everyone. So we may not have all experienced maybe a manifestation of his presence or experienced just being in his presence before. But even so, it can be very easy for us to become complacent towards the presence of God. He is so near and always available. And so sometimes because of that, we can stop seeing his presence as as a gift, as the precious gift that it is. Um, To be just very transparent, last Wednesday we had a worship night here, and it was just awesome. They're always awesome. It was amazing. But I, I really had to get over myself last Wednesday. It had, nothing, it had nothing to do with the music. It had nothing to do with anybody. It was, it was just me. And I was standing there like the eyes closed, arms crossed, not because I was angry or upset, but because I was telling myself, here's what you're going to do. I was getting out of my head, and I was telling myself, his presence is a gift. And whether you feel like it or not, you will worship. God's presence is a gift. In 1 Samuel, we see two different mindsets play out. Now, I'm going to briefly, briefly go over chapters 1 through 3, and then we're going to read a passage in chapter 4. But just to get some context of what's going on here, in chapter 1, we meet a woman named Hannah. Hannah is married, but is plagued with grief because she is barren, and she so desperately wants a child. Not only that, but her husband's other wife, Penina, which obviously is not good to have multiple wives. It was cultural in that time. Penina, who has borne her husband many children, often mocks Hannah for being barren because she's a mean woman. And in that time, the value of a woman was in her ability to bear children and specifically sons. So each year, Hannah's husband would take his wives and children to Shiloh, and Shiloh was where the temple was. So that's where they would go to offer sacrifices, to worship, And uh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant lived. In 1 Samuel 1, verse 7, it says, So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, Penina would provoke Hannah. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord in the temple, and she wept bitterly. Now, interestingly, she's the only female that Scripture records is going into the tabernacle, and it's the first time we see in Scripture that God invited women into that space as well. So there's a lot happening here. And uh, she said these words in chapter 1, verse 11. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Meanwhile, Eli, who is the high priest of Shiloh, was sitting by the doorpost and was observing her weeping. And she was so in such deep anguish 
that she wasn't speaking anything out loud, but was mouthing her prayers. And so he couldn't hear what she was saying, but because of her countenance, he, he thought that she was drunk. And so he begins to rebuke her for being drunk. And uh, she tells him that's not what's happening here, but she's deeply troubled and she's just, she's speaking out of the depths of her soul. So Eli says this to her in chapter one, verse 17, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Then the woman went her way, she ate, and her face was no longer sad. There's not a lot that a good snack can't fix, so I get it. Not too long after that, Hannah becomes pregnant, and she gives birth. She uh, gives birth to a son, and she calls him Samuel, which means God hears. And after Samuel was weaned, she keeps her promise and when they make their yearly trip to Shiloh, she reminds Eli of who she is and she gives her son to the temple to be raised in the house of the Lord. Now in chapter two, Hannah sings a song of prayer to the Lord and we see three different themes in her prayer. First thing is God values humility and opposes pride and we're gonna talk a little bit about that. God is at work among his people, even in the midst of the chaos around them. And we're going to talk about what chaos is around them. And then she prophesies about a king that God will anoint and strengthen. And in this time, there were no kings, there were only judges. And so in this prayer that she's pouring out to the Lord, she prophesies of a coming king. We also, in chapter 2, meet the sons of Eli. And they are no good. Hophni and Phinehas. In chapter two, verse 12, it says, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And in verse 17, it says, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. What they would do is uh, they would take uh, a portion of the sacrifice more than the portion that the Lord had allotted for the priest to take. They were greedy. They were stingy, they were blasphemous, and not only that, but they took advantage of their authority as priests, and they were sexually promiscuous with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they were just bad dudes all around. And because all that Eli did was rebuke his sons, he sent a prophet to rebuke Eli. And in chapter 30, it says, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So what God does is he curses Eli's house, and he tells him that he would have only one man that will survive among his family. So it, it's interesting here, uh, God is not breaking his promise to the Levites. Um, the covenant that he established was contingent upon their obedience and they were not obedient to the Lord. They, if we sum everything up in this chapter, they just, they did not fear God. In chapter three, we see Samuel ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Now, this period in Israel's history was not like in Moses's where the leaders in Moses's time walked closely with God. The Israelites and their leaders in this point, at this point, were mostly walking in rebellion. And so their communication with God was not frequent. It was very rare. Now, Samuel at this point has not even met God, 
But we see in this chapter that God audibly speaks to Samuel. He calls his name, but because Samuel had never heard God's voice, he thought it was Eli speaking. Now this happens twice before Eli perceives that it is God who is speaking to Samuel. So he begins, Eli begins coaching Samuel on how to respond to God. Here's what you need to say. So the very first time that God speaks to Samuel, he tells him this right here. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, but he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And then the next verse is awesome because it says, then Samuel lay there until morning. <laughs> That's, that is heavy. And I would too, I'd, I'd delay that as long as possible. Uh, the Eli was mentoring Samuel and teaching him the ways of the Lord in the temple. And the first time that God speaks to Samuel, it's not, Samuel, thank you so much for ministering to me. That blesses me. You know, it's not Samuel, I'm gonna raise you up to be a prophet. You know, it could have been anything. And that's what he chose to tell Samuel. Now, what did God tell him? He told him a secret. Now, this was not known to anyone else but to an unknown prophet and to Eli. And we don't see in Scripture that other people know what God had told Eli through this prophet. And so what God did was he told Samuel trusted information, which is beyond just flattering him with you're going to be mighty, you're going to be a prophet who speaks my words, thank you for ministering to me. He tells Samuel trusted information. Why? In Psalms 25, Verse 12 through 14, it says, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship or other translations say the secrets of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. Samuel treated the sacred space of God, the temple, as something so precious because he feared God. And because of that, God trusted with him information. Eli knew 
that God had spoken to Samuel. And he told Samuel to not hide what he had heard. So Samuel boldly communicates what God had spoken about Eli's house. And then in verse 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Because Samuel, who was a very young man at this time, understood something. He understood the preciousness of the presence of God. If we move on to chapter 4, we're going to read a passage out of here. Israel, right now, in chapter 4, is in a fierce battle against the Philistines at Ebenezer. So we're going to start in verse 1. I am reading out of the um, ESV. It says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 Israelites on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the no good dudes, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Verse five, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man man to his home. And there was a great, a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So, Israel just experienced an incredible defeat. They went from 4,000 killed, bringing in the Ark of the Covenant, thinking this would save them, to 30,000. And that doesn't make any sense. Eli who is 98 years old at this time, hears the uproar and finds out that not only has Israel been defeated by the Philistines, but his two sons have died. But the moment that he heard the news that the ark had been taken, Eli fell over in his chair and died. When he heard about the ark, Verse 13 says that Eli was sitting by the road watching because his heart trembled. 
which in that, that word trembled actually means he was afraid for the ark of God, because though his iniquity had been great concerning his sons, Eli understood the value of the preciousness of the presence of God and what the ark represented. I mentioned earlier that we see two different mindsets play out in these few chapters. And what Hophni and Phinehas give us is a great example of entitlement, entitlement. We can see from reading here that Hophni and Phinehas felt they were entitled to a greater portion than God had allotted for them. They felt entitled to the favor of God simply because of their position. So they compromised boundaries and strayed into ungodly and disobedient behavior and it started in their minds. It started with their thoughts. They did not have any reverence for the Lord. What Hophni and Phinehas failed to realize is that it was not the presence of the ark itself that gave others before them victory, but the power came from God appearing for them. And in the same way for us, it's not the pastor who gives us power, it's not our spiritual leaders who give us power, They may encourage us, they may admonish us, they may pray for us, they may walk with us, but people and objects are unable to save and empower us, right? Like how lighting sage in your house will not get rid of evil spirits, right? Like how the presence of crystals in your home will not make your life better, right? So objects do not hold power. Sometimes it can be easier to believe in the power of a tangible object because we can use that object at our disposal. There is no requirement of us. The sons of Eli were both apathetic and ambitious at the same, and those are opposites at the same time. Now just for a refresher, just a vocabulary lesson real quick. Apathy means a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern, and ambition is the exact opposite. It means a strong desire to do or achieve something requiring hard work. They were apathetic towards their desire to please God and honor their holy position as priests of God, and they were ambitious in attaining their self-serving desires. So they thought they could take the object that is the Ark of the Covenant and completely remove the purpose of the Ark to attain, to be able to receive what they wanted. They wanted to use it at their discretion. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Ambition can be very useful in the life of a believer. I've got ambition, you know. Whenever I, uh, at home, you know, I don't know if some of you you may do this. I'll stand in a room, living room, bedroom, and I'll just go like this. And I'm just looking. I'm looking at the walls. 
I'm scanning my furniture. You know, I'm looking around and, and my wheels are turning. And the, great, the, the best part is when I get the, the uh, tape measure out and I'm just, I'm just I just want to see. I just want to have an idea. I have a thought. I just have to see if it'll work out right. And I, and I do that. And then, then my husband sees me and he sees, and we call it go mode. We're about, you're about to be in go mode. And I've got an idea and I'm about to do it because if I don't do it now, I'm not going to. And so then he asks me the all important question. What project are you about to start that I'm going to have to finish? <laughs> Listen, I, I do finish some projects, but if he's better at it, why would, I, why would I keep doing it? You know what I'm saying? I have other things I could do. I'm ambitious, and my ambition to make my home welcoming, to make it peaceful, to make it look nice, gives me the energy to improve it. But if I can be very honest with you, rarely has my ambition served me well. Rarely. My ambition, when not submitted to the Holy Spirit, has often been the greatest hurdle in my pursuit to live a life of obedience to God. When it's not submitted, I can inadvertently or purposefully create an idol out of my desire. You have ambition to make more money. But without it being tempered by God, you can become a workaholic. And you're making money will be your idol, right? You have ambition to give your kids a better life than you had. But without that ambition being tempered by God, you can make your children an idol. And I'm, I, I'm a mama, I know. You have ambition to do more ministry. But without it being tempered by God, you can make doing things for God an idol. Instead of walking in obedience to him. Our ambition has to be submitted. What does submitting our ambition to God look like? It looks like this. What do you want me to do? I have energy. I have thoughts. I have good ideas. I have passion and I have drive. But what do you want me to do with it? My palms are open. It is every day asking God, what do you want me to do with my desire? What decision in my business do you want me to make today? What do you want me to give up or to pursue today? Ambition can be a great asset to the Christian, but it's just not a fruit of the Spirit. And a lot of people have ambition and view it as a necessary quality to be successful in family and career and health and ministry. But unbelievers have ambition. Everyone has ambition. It's just not what sets us apart as believers and as followers of Jesus. Ambition is only fruitful when it's tempered by the word of God and led by his spirit. What was the motivation of the sons of Eli when they took the ark from its resting place into battle? They were weaponizing the power of God 
for their own personal benefit. Their ambition distorted their view of the purpose of the ark. The purpose. One commentator says it like this. The presence of the ark in the war is not a magical means with power to bring about victory. The role of the ark in a war is that the army carrying it will be influenced by it. That the army camp will be a holy place. When the nation is not influenced by the ark, it becomes nothing more than pieces of wood coated, coated in gold and the tablets become nothing more than pieces of stone etched with letters. It's not solely our experiences with God that change, that bring about change in our life. It's not the experience of his presence that changes our hearts and minds. Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the temple and Moses outlines the duty of the priests of Israel, but there are a few major roles that they played. One, they were to apply the blood of the sacrifice to the altar. They were to teach the people under the covenant Israel. They were to purify the house of God and they were to communicate the blessings of God. But Hophni and Phinehas were unable to be affected and influenced by any of the spiritual work that they had sat under and performed because their hearts were proud. And pride always blinds its victims. There's a difference between being bold and being prideful, right? We are to come boldly before the throne of God with sincere hearts full of faith. Jesus even told us a parable that spoke to exactly this in Luke 18, verse 19 through 14. And he actually says to those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, it says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am uh, not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." Now, let me tell you, I have been humbled by God before, and it would have hurt a lot less if I would have humbled myself. Pride. Lucifer and the fallen angels experienced the fullness of the glory of God. He even led the heavens in worship to him. But it wasn't enough to keep his thoughts about himself pure. It's not enough to be in it. We must be changed and influenced by it. And that's what Hophni and Phinehas did not understand. They did not understand that they first had to be influenced, heart change, before their outer circumstances would change at all because that's how God works. He does not work from the outside in. He works from the inside out. 
It's necessary to experience God. It is so necessary to have experiences with him, but it must be translated into daily communion with a humble heart. So because of the lack of holy fear, God allowed the ark to be taken by the Philistines, the representation of his presence completely removed from Israel. But the Philistines, in their mind, thought that they had conquered Jehovah. That because they took the ark, that they had actually conquered it. So the Philistines take it to one of their cities called Ashdod, and Ashdod is where their god Dagon resided. So they set up the Ark of the Covenant right beside their god Dagon, and the next day when they went to the house of Dagon, their god had fallen over right in front of the the Ark of the Covenant. So they pick it up, they hoist it up, and they set it right back next to the Ark. They go in the next morning, and Dagon again had fallen in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but this time its head and his hands had been severed from its body and it was completely shattered in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It says that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod because they thought that God could be defeated. They thought they had conquered his presence just by simply taking the Ark. So they took it to another city called Gath, and that didn't work out. The hand of God was heavy there. They took it to another city called Akron. The hand of God was also heavy there. And it cycled through the country of the Philistines for seven months. And they decided, his hand is too heavy on all of our cities. They were becoming sick, getting tumors. There were infestations of mice. They're just, it it was terrible. So they said, we don't want it anymore. So they put it on a cart and they tied two dairy cows to the cart because the dairy cows want to be with their babies. They're not like the other cattle that work in the field. And so they knew if they tied these dairy dairy cows to the cart and if they headed towards Israel, not back to their babies, then it was surely the hand of God that had done all these things to them. And sure enough, the dairy cows go straight to Israelite territory with the Ark of the Covenant on this cart. And they enter into a land called Beth Shemesh. And in chapter uh, 6, verse 13, it says, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their, their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Now Beth Shemesh was a priestly city, and they were working, and they were reaping their harvest, when suddenly the ark of the covenant comes into their land, and they stop immediately what they're doing, because they now understood what they did not understand before. They understood what Hannah, who we read about, and Samuel understood already, that the presence of God is a sacred and precious gift. What had previously been taken for granted, they now see the preciousness of it. Hannah understood this already. We talked about two different mindsets, how Hophni and Phinehas, they really gave us a good example of entitlement. Hannah's mindset was not that of entitlement, but of desperation. Desperation. Eli was complacent towards his presence. Hophni and Phinehas blaspheming God and weaponized his presence. The Philistines tried to conquer his presence, but Hannah was desperate for his presence. And here's how we need to be like Hannah. 
with no title, no platform, no authority, and no influence, she was rewarded with her request for a son because she had great reverence for God. And number two, she remained faithful in her request despite the follies of others. Despite being mocked and made fun of for something she had no control over, instead of allowing herself to get bitter, she understood the power of the presence at the temple. Her own husband asked her and was wondering why. She had such a deep longing for a son, asking her if he is not enough for her. And if we aren't careful, we will let our negative experiences with people make us spiritual skeptics. We become skeptical of people, and that can seep into our mindset of God. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment, not skepticism. Discernment is led by God's Spirit, and skepticism is led by our doubts. Hannah remained faithful in her request to God and did not allow herself to become skeptical. The devil was working real hard to keep her from going. It says, as often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, Penina, the other wife who could have a lot of kids, would provoke her. As often as she went to the house of the Lord, Penina would provoke her. When she went to the house of the Lord, Penina would provoke her. And year after year after year, Hannah, who was already grieving, who was already in deep distress over the fact that she cannot have children, now has to deal with this woman And yet, still in her distress, as she would weep bitterly, Hannah would pick herself up, eat some food, and walk into the throne room of God. Despite how she felt, despite what other people were doing, despite what her circumstances were, as she would grieve, she would still pick herself up and walk into that temple because she understood the preciousness and the power of his presence. Satan hates us and will do whatever he can to keep us communing with God. He will mock you, he will discourage you, he will condemn you, and he will make you feel unworthy. You may have not even wanted to walk in this room today, but the really good news is this. You didn't earn his presence in the first place. It was given to you. It was a gift And that's what's so precious about his presence. It was given. His son's blood atoned for our right to freely commune with our father. And if you, like Hannah, feel condemned, if you feel like you don't deserve to speak to him. If you, like Hannah, feel weary for consistently crying out to him about something you don't have any control over, waiting for something to happen, pick your 
self up. Walk into that throne room and make your request known to your father. We have to tell ourselves what we're going to do. We have to tell ourselves what we're going to think. And we cannot allow the devil's tactics to control whether or not we commune with him when it was bought for you. It was bought for you and given, so it can't be taken. First Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Hannah was humble and desperate, so her heart was soft and willing. Hannah understood what her authority did not, that he is worthy despite how she felt and despite the actions of others. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not serve a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus' greater priesthood gave us a new covenant a covenant sealed by his blood that we may boldly enter in, that we may boldly come to the throne room and come into our greatest gift that is his presence and not only experience the fullness of his glory, but be changed by it from the inside out through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> All right, y'all stand with me. If y'all could just, uh, real quick, I know we're, we're three minutes over, y'all. It's not bad. And the kids are having fun over there. My kids are over there too. Just extend your hands. I just feel, I feel uh, strongly right now that those of you who have felt unworthy to enter into his presence, to first repent and then to turn to him. Because his presence is not something that you, that, that we earned. He gave it, and he is near right now. His presence is here right now. So God, we repent for our selfish ways. We repent for using your presence in a way that serves us. Your presence was bought with your son's blood, and we understand how precious it is to us. Make us aware, God. 
Make us aware of your presence. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may come boldly. That like Hannah, we would pick ourselves up and walk into the throne room. Not only because we understand the power of your presence, but we also know, God, you care for us. God, you want to commune with us. So thank you that in every season, in every walk of life, you're so gracious to meet us in a new way. You're so gracious to see where we're at in life and speak to us in so many different ways. So open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, God, that we may hear from you. And those of you, the, those of, of them in here and listening on podcast who have never heard your voice before, God, I thank you that you impart into them your word and that your words would speak to them that they would hear you like Samuel, even if they don't know you, that they would hear you and they would know it's their shepherd. We love you. We're grateful for the gift that is your presence. Thank you as we go through the, the rest of this week that we would be mindful of you, of you, of your presence and of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Christian Ministries Church. If this message impacted you and you'd like to sow into our ministry, you can give at cmchurch.com. If you'd like to listen to more of our messages, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Christian Ministries. God bless.